Hi, I'm Amber and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Cynthia Thurlow. She is a nurse practitioner, a functional nutritionist, an intermittent fasting expert, and a very, very busy woman. She also has a podcast. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. I've really been looking forward to connecting with you. I'm so excited. So our topic is going to be empowering women to take back their health. Such an important subject, I feel, and and it's not talked about enough. So let's get started. And I'd like to hear a little bit about your background, like a professional background and also kind of your health background. And I'm, I'm curious about why you spent so many days in the hospital. What was going on? I didn't really hear the background of that. So I'm curious. Yeah, no. So I'm a allopathic Western medicine trained nurse practitioner. My background uh, prior to becoming an MP was in ER medicine. So I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And then I spent 16 years in cardiology as an MP. I'm fascinated by the heart. But when I became a parent, I really started to look very differently at the impact of nutrition on our health and wellness. I have a child who's now 15, who had life-threatening food allergies. And that dove me down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out why this happened. You know, I have always eaten very healthy. He was exclusively breastfed. I mean, I did all the right things. Right. And so he had terrible eczema and I kept, you know, saying to the pediatrician, could it be something I'm eating? And she kept saying, no, 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 he's fine. Just put this topical steroid on it. He'll be fine. Well, when he hit a year, I was like, okay, clearly there's something more to this. And so that's when we found out he had life-threatening food allergies. And then I read a book called The Unhealthy Truth. And I'm not sure if you've ever read Robin O'Brien's book, Mm -hmm. but for me, it was life-changing in the respect that uh, I was getting validation about how our food impacts um, not only big ag, uh, the influence of the food industry, the processed food industry, the impact on our health, the rise in autoimmune issues, obesity, et cetera. And so that really shifted my perspective. I continued to work part-time as an NP. I had a second child. Uh, and then I started to become a little bit disillusioned with what I was doing. I was still, you know, when I was in the hospital or in clinic, I was doing all the things, writing prescriptions, saving lives, uh, like so many other healthcare providers do. But on the side, I was like, hmm, maybe I want to go back into academics and do a PhD. And so I took one class and hated it. And then I dove down a wellness coaching program, which I did, but I didn't love it. And then I read another book called Eat the Oaks. And the woman that wrote that book, I reached out to her and I said, I love everything you have to say. Where did you get your training? And so I then did a functional nutrition program and really landed where I needed to be. And that was the beginning of the end of my traditional allopathic medicine career And so one year later, I woke up one morning and said to my husband, I can't do this anymore. And I'm married to an engineer, finance guy. And he was like, what do you mean you're walking away from a six figure job to be an entrepreneur? What? You don't even have a business plan. You don't even know how you're going to make money. And I said, I know I'm going to be successful. And so I left actually five years ago, April 1st, left clinical medicine and almost immediately had a specific kind of patient that was coming to see me. And, uh, you know, is helping to empower women, you know, from, you know, 35 years old and up people that were heading into perimenopause and and later menopause really struggling with health issues. And so I was working with people one-on-one, I was creating group programs, which was all very exciting and then getting to that 13 day hospitalization. So in 2019, I, for the very first time was able to take a business trip with my husband. I've never been able to accompany him. He's been all over the world. And so he was going to Hawaii And my mom had finally retired and it sounded like a fantastic idea. We're going to go to Hawaii and 
he's going to work during the day and I'm going to write, start writing copy for my second Ted talk. And I had a great time when I was away. I got a good chunk of my talk written out, came home and developed the worst abdominal pain I had ever experienced. And I, of course, assumed I had food poisoning Mm -hmm. and then it didn't stop and it got worse. And I remember I called my primary care provider, who's a very good friend. And I told her everything that was happening. And she said, you realize you have to go to the ER, right? And I was like, yeah, I don't really want to though. Uh, and something that oftentimes happens with patients when they're very sick is they get this impending sense of doom. And when I was an ER nurse, and even when I worked in cardiology as an NP, if any patient ever said to me, I think I'm going to die, I took it very seriously. And when I got to the ER, I told my husband, I said, if they don't figure out what's going on with me, I know I'm going to die. I couldn't get comfortable. Um, And when I say I couldn't get comfortable, when you have abdominal pain that bad, I mean, it doesn't matter if you sit, stand, stand, you know, sit upside down, you can't get comfortable. And they didn't take me very seriously in the beginning because my blood pressure is normally a little low and my pulse rate, which is normally low, was still within normal limits and I wasn't running a fever. And it wasn't until the blood work came back that all of a sudden things started to move really quickly. Like I, I had been mm-hmm. handed off into, to a physician's assistant. And then all of a sudden I had a surgeon, uh, the, the head of ER medicine telling me I had a ruptured appendix and I had an inflamed colon, which explained why I was in so much pain. And that I was actually so sick. They feared that if they took me to surgery that night, I would lose my entire length of my colon. And as sick as I was, I kept saying to the surgeon, you can't take my colon. And she said, oh no, you would be fine. And I said, no, no, I would have a bag for the rest of my life, a colostomy bag. And I said, that is not acceptable. And that is not a way to live because if anyone of the listeners have ever seen someone who has had their colon removed, they don't digest food. Well, I mean, they literally just have like liquid stool that goes into a bag and that's how they live the rest of their lives. And so um, I had a, a wonderful team of predominantly female physicians, and they said, we're going to try to do everything we can to save your colon and to, you know, get you out of being septic. And so it was this 13 day hospitalization where I had one complication after another, I got a small bowel obstruction. And really it's the body's way of saying, do not give me any food. <laughs> it's, we are shutting everything down. So I went from being this tiny five foot three person losing 15 pounds, which was a ton of weight for me to, uh, getting to the point where I looked six months pregnant because my small bowel had just shut down. And then, you know, five days in, I started becoming really depressed because I would, I recognized how sick I was and I had tubes down my nose and I had, you know, I had drains all over the place and I had a central line in, and then they wanted to give me TPN, which is like a bag of crap. Um, it's a bag of soy products so that you don't die. Cause I, I was just losing too much weight. And then I developed, um, more complications. I got an ab, I got a couple abscesses. They had to put drains and I had to go to a special interventional radiologist who was called in to, to put drains in. And then I developed a fistula. So this was my 13 days of being incredibly humbled. And I came home and I remember telling my, my, um, husband that I still wanted to do this talk. And I still wanted to, you know, make sure I could be home for my children. And so um, I think the most pivotal thing about this entire story is the power of our mindset. And for me, all I thought about when I was in the hospital was getting home to my kids and my husband, and that I still wanted to do this talk. And so 27 days after I left the hospital, I stood up on stage with a ruptured appendix because I was still not well enough to do 
uh, surgery on myself, I did my second talk. And then 10 days later, I had my appendix out. And I've been doing really well since then. But it just goes to show you that mindset is everything. I don't care if you're male or female, the power of our mindset is the most powerful thing we possess. And unfortunately, not Mm -hmm. enough people realize that. And so I tell my boys all the time, I still can't believe I did that. Like it's unbelievable to me two years later, but it also was like something I'm very proud of because I showed them, uh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't hundred percent. I mean, I, it's painful to even look at that video because I look very emaciated. I don't look healthy at all, Mm -hmm. but I did it. And it was like, I wanted to make sure my brain was still working. I remember telling them, I was like, my brain still works. This is awesome. I can commit a talk to memory, (laughs) stand up in front of 500 people give a talk. And then it was like the rest of the day was fun. It was just fun, you know, being around all these other speakers and I had family there. And so that's the story about my 13 days and my background. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I was not expecting that. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty major. Okay. So when you did the Ted talk, okay. It's your mindset is what got you there, but why was that so important? Was it to prove that you could, or was it because what you felt you had to say was so important to get out there? I I think it was more the latter than the former, but if I think about my mindset back then, it was, I think this is really valuable information Mm -hmm. and I'm so tired of writing prescriptions. I'm so tired of, of the pill being an answer to all of all of my patients' problems. And we've conditioned people to believe that. But I also think it was the fact that when I was in the hospital, when I feel like God gave me a choice, you know, this, this spiritual intervention that occurred when I was in that hospital bed, I made a decision to live. And I was like, I fear nothing. Like that is, mm. that is what I think is so powerful is that I told my husband the other day, I was like, I fear nothing. Like I literally fear nothing. Like after being that sick, coming back and, you know, 2020 didn't do us any favors. Um, the way that I live, the way that I encourage my children to live their lives, the way that I live my life is leap, like, just do it. Stop making excuses. Just do it. I love, love, love that. (laughs) And that is something I've had to struggle to learn to do. And I still have some work to do, but the fact that I'm in front of the camera instead of hiding or behind the camera Mm -hmm. is huge leap for me. So I'm making little steps. So I think that is amazing. Amazing. Kudos to you. Thank you. Okay. So I want to get into women in healthcare. Mm -hmm. I know that like, a lot of women, especially the older generation, even like my generation, <laughs> I'm not going to call myself old, but nope. we're, you know, doctors and, and health professionals are kind of looked at like they are almost like gods in a way. Mm-hmm. And you don't question, you accept, you whatever, and you just do what they tell you, bam, bam, bam. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was different because I'm stubborn and I, I just had this, I don't know, fear. I don't know if it was fear or just mistrust of professional health professionals. I'm not really sure why I think something happened when I was younger, but whatever I had, I had that. So I spoke up and and if I didn't like something, I got up and walked out. I was, Mm -hmm. that's just the way I was, but many people don't do that. Mm -hmm. And they just accept it. My mother for one. And why, why do you think that is? What, what are some issues with women in healthcare? Well, I I think that it stems largely from the lack of empowerment in many ways. You know, we have to be our own best advocates. 
And, uh, you know, when I was in clinical practice as an NP, you know, in a traditional setting, there were certain generations, like the World War II generation were my favorite group of patients, favorite by far. And they oftentimes didn't ask a lot of questions. And there was this true intrinsic trust that, that went on. And I used to say all the time, like, I want you to ask questions. I want you to have me explain to you why I think this is the best, the best next step, whether it's a medication, a procedure or surgery. Uh, and then, you know, I think about my mother and father's generation, you know, they were born in the forties. So the baby boomers, and it's a mixed bag. Like some people would ask questions and others would not, you know, they lived through the women's, you know, lib movement. Um, and then you have a whole group of people that I think just kind of coexist. I mean, most of us that were born 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, it's really a mixed bag. I mean, some people have been conditioned to believe that uh, a pill is going to fix everything. And, and we have mm-hmm. largely conditioned our patient population to believe that. I mean, look at all the commercials that you see oh, on TV. God. I don't watch TV, so I don't see them, but I'm told that there are a lot of commercials on TV, there are. Uh, which is annoying. And so we've, we've marketed to our patient population that a pill is going to solve a symptom instead of really digging deeper and asking people to really do the hard work because the hard work is the lifestyle changes and you know, I I believe in most instances, women do the bulk of the housework and women do the bulk of the child rearing and women do the bulk of the errands and the cooking and the cleaning. Even if you have help, we we are still doing all the things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's a combination of lack of empowerment, I believe it's a combination of, you know, kind of traditional roles and and let's be clear, there's no one out there right now that's doing everything themselves. I think most people are, are, are having some degree of help. If it's from a spouse or there's a babysitter or there's, there's a caretaker, there's someone that's providing some degree of support family or otherwise. Um, I think that's definitely part of it. And then the other issue that I really see as problematic is this degree of age ageism you know, especially with social media that it's, and I was listening to an interview. Um, it was Oprah's podcast. She was interviewing Sharon Stone and Sharon Stone nailed it on the head. She said, women are conditioned to believe that after 40, they are worthless. She's like, that happens in Hollywood. That happens on social media. And I would agree that I knew a lot about women through my training up until, you know, it was kind of like menopause and you fall off a cliff. Like you don't really hear a lot. No one, no one teaches you about perimenopause. I mean, good Lord, that five, seven years preceding menopause and certainly not menopause. Like after menopause, you're like an old fart and you have a dried up vagina and you, you get hot flashes and you're going to get fat and just all these horrible things that, you know, there's this lack of true understanding about how to support women as they get older. So I think it's, we use the term multifactorial. I think there are a lot of different things that contribute, but, you know, society's perceptions of aging, you know, men can get old and wrinkly, but God forbid women do. Uh, I know we were talking about this before we started recording, but uh, on social media, it's not at all unusual for people to slide into my DMs and they can't criticize me about a whole heck of a lot, but they do like to, you know, they're like, well, what are you like 70? And of course I'm not close to 70, but if that's the only thing that you can kind of like crack on me about is, you know, perceived age or perceived, you know, being North of 40 years old, then, you know, that's, that's speaking more to someone's own, you know, mindset limitations and a really poor understanding of the way that, um, you know, there, there's so many advantages to being 
not being 25. I wouldn't want to go back to 25 if you gave me a million dollars. So I, I think, <laughs> all things, yeah, I think all of those things certainly contribute, but the greatest um, contributor, I, I think is just this disharmony, disunity, you know, the influence of mainstream news, which I mean, really, unfortunately, like I, my first degree was a poly, I was a poli sci major. I loved having vigorous debates. We had lots of debates. I went to a mm. university that was outside of Washington, DC. And so we had a lot of vigorous debates. And then when we agreed to disagree, when we were done with class, we'd go out and like have a beer. And it, unfortunately now everything is so polarized and dogmatic that I think that is definitely not helping the situation at all. Agree a hundred percent on that. Okay. So I'm going to use an example of something that happened to me mm -hmm. when I was pregnant with my first baby, we had, we decided to use our, my OBGYN and just continue with him. And when we got to talking about birth plans and getting more serious into mm -hmm. that, and I specifically said, I really don't want an episiotomy and mm -hmm. I don't want an IV. I don't, I mean, of course, if it's necessary, yes, right. but I don't want that standard because back then it was just standard. You just did mm -hmm. it. You just rip it, whatever. And he said, uh, no, that's just what I do. And I said, I really don't want that. That's, mm -hmm. you know, and he goes, fine, rip wide open yeah. like that. And I was like, oh, and yeah, in my seventh month, I switched doctors. Good for you. I, I hear that this happens a lot and mm -hmm. I just saw somebody on Instagram and I love her. I won't, won't call her out, but, um, when she was dealing with issues with her, her baby, there were some pretty rough things that were said to her. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what in the world It's mm -hmm. like, it's almost like, because you're a woman, it's easier to it, it roll over you because I guarantee you, they wouldn't have said that same thing to my husband. Right. Right. And, yeah. and I, unfortunately there is a degree of sexism, even if you're in medicine or you're trying to buy a car, um, you know, we're in a rental house. I'll give you an example. And the guy that owns the rental house is very nice, but I let my husband be the person to deal with him because, you know, I'm like, if you, if you have to be the heavy, then I'll let you be the heavy because if I do it, it's not going to be perceived the same way. Same thing with we're building a house. And he is the point of contact for the builder because it's in the South and, you know, sometimes in the South, uh, women are kind of not thought of as equals and I'm making a huge overgeneralization, but it's just come to find like this part of the state we're moving into. That is definitely the vibe I'm getting already. And so I'm just like, I'm going to let my husband deal with this. You know, we've already talked about it. So he knows like what we want as a couple and I'm like, you can deal with the builder. And so we're finding that is much more efficacious than me trying to have that conversation. But I agree with you. There's some degree of sexism that goes on. It's unfortunate. Um, you know, I, I rem I'm, I'm the only female in my house, including our menagerie of animals and my children. And so I remind them all the time <sighs> that, yeah, I remind them all the time. I'm like, listen, we have to be cognizant of the fact that things are not always equal for men or for women. It's not just specific to one gender, but yeah, in a medical setting, um, I, I've certainly experienced that. I think that I was able to navigate around that a great deal just because of my background. Uh, but, you know, I certainly saw examples of that, you know, very arrogant physicians, oftentimes physicians, um, and, I'm, and I'm very pro-physician, let me be clear about that. I have a lot of very good friends and family members who are doctors, but there's definitely 
people who don't like being challenged. And that's really what it comes down to. They don't like being challenged. They don't want to be told this is my birth plan and this is what I'm advocating for. I need to be my own best advocate. And, and even in my situation, when I was you know, so sick, I was like, please don't take my colon. And because I had a woman, I'm fairly certain that she really paid attention and tuned into that because um, that is what happened. Uh, I didn't lose my colon, but you know, even for you, I'm so glad that you were able to have the kind of birth plan that you wanted and needed because for each one of excellent. us, <laughs> that could look very different. Um, yeah. you know, and you meet people that had terrible birth experiences and they're either afraid to have a second pregnancy <laughs> or they're afraid to ever have another vaginal delivery or that, you know, they, they've been so traumatized. They then have a distrust of the medical community, which is such a shame. Um, but unfortunately those, those things happen. And, and as an NP, and as a nurse, I mean, I, I got to see it all. I mean, just all of it. So you can imagine that trickle down of someone who's really arrogant and says something like that to you as a woman, mm-hmm. that's a trickle down effect, but there's, cause there's probably nurses that have, you know, dealt with that unpleasant person and other patients. And some women just feel like, oh, because I'm a woman, the doctor knows best. And like heck to the no. Yes. In some instances they do, but you need to advocate for yourself. You need to be able to say, I like this idea or no, that scares the bejeebers out of me. And here's why. And they should be able to listen to that and process it. Yes. I, oh, yes. And like, I've I've got like more confidence because I, I, I've done a lot of research and it's my body. It's my body. What's going on in me. I need to know. And Mm -hmm. so instead of just blindly accepting, I ask questions questions, 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 which is great. My husband's like, Oh God, Oh God. You know, but I'm like, well, I want to know. And I have this, I had this dentist and he's awesome. And he loves that. I'm interested enough in my own body that I ask questions. He even like when I had some stuff done because of the horrible eating disorders and crap, I had teeth issues like the back ones. And, um, so he was doing some work on that and he would actually draw diagrams. So exactly what was going to happen. And and he just loves spending that time with me and and answering questions. But there are a lot of doctors, like what you were saying, Mm -hmm. who don't like to be quote challenged, even though that's not what you're doing. It's your body. Just like you with your colon, uh, excuse me. No, I want to keep that. Hello. Um, so how do women take that power back? How can you help? What can you say to help them get over that hurdle to feel okay about Mm -hmm. asking those questions about Mm -hmm. not just blindly accepting what you're told? I think you have to do your research. And, and, and by this, I, I don't mean you go to only one website and you only look at one opinion. I, I think part of being educated is to get an appreciation for all the sides and to be able to sit down and objectively look at the information and say, based on my research, I would really prefer to do X. And, you know, there was never, I, I mean, I laughed because when I was a new nurse practitioner, so I'm just out of graduate school, it's my first job, I'm terrified, God, for the first six months I would go to work and I was like, please don't let me kill anyone because you have so much responsibility as a clinician and I'm such a like conscientious person and I'll never forget one of the first patients I took care of and he would come in and he would have all this supplement data. And this is back when I wasn't as open-minded, but I was always very open-minded to what my patients would share. So then he would give me stuff to go home and, and learn about. And I would always say to him, like, I, even if I don't agree with what you're saying, I so appreciate and value that you took the time to research alternative perspectives. So I would say, first and foremost, the education piece, take time to educate yourself. Number two, speak with authority. Like, 
no one wants to hear you go, well, um, no, I want to do X, like a declarative statement, make it clear, or just even say, I would prefer to better understand this option. Okay. No one's going to denigrate you over that, but go in there with, with the information, your own research, be objective, be open-minded. And generally speaking, I find that most clinicians are very open to that, that they are, it, it could be in a situation outside the medical community, but I think, you know, meeting people where they are is part of being a clinician. And I found most of the physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners that were in my age range, all were very open-minded. I, I think sometimes the, that kind of scarcity mindset thinking that you'll see in some healthcare providers, it could be generational, it could be a geographical, it could be an academic medical center versus a community medical center. And there's pros and cons to both. I always call it ivory tower, you know, people that are just in academics and they're no longer, or they have a very hands-off approach to uh, clinical, you know, direct patient care. And they kind of forget that, you know, yeah, that research study may say this is best, but is that realistic for your patient? And so I think a part of it is just, you know, having declarative statements and a lot of it's your delivery. And I, I think that's absolutely critical because you can say just about anything as long as you say it nicely. And I've just kind of lived my life that way. Like when I had to say to patients, we really need to work on your weight. So let's talk about five pounds. Like let's stay at a goal for five pounds. That sounds benign. And then I'd walk out and the physicians were like, that person needs to lose 50 pounds. I was like, I understand that. But if I walk in there and say, you need to lose 50 pounds, do you think that patient's going to be open to that? No, it sounds insurmountable. Let's start small. And Overwhelming. so, right. And that's, you know, that's unfortunately the lifestyle piece is so critical, but mm-hmm. I could say, I could say just about anything to a patient. It's all in the way you deliver it. And the same way it goes with communication with your healthcare provider, really just being respectful and coming from a help me understand better or help me understand my options better. Um, I think coming into it with um, a curiosity, being very clear about your intentions. Um, unfortunately, now I think a lot of clinicians sometimes get frustrated because uh, you know if they get questioned all the time, they can just get frustrated. And I, mm-hmm. and I get that, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily think alternative approaches are a bad thing. I think each one of us has to you know, find the path that works best. I'll be honest with you. Like mm-hmm. people were shocked. I left the hospital without having my appendix removed. My <laughs> surgeon and I both agreed that I was not healthy enough to do surgery. It would be another stressor. So we waited mm-hmm. six weeks. Then I had my appendix out. And she said to me, listen, your body had nicely walled this appendix off. But the, the, the issue is eventually it would have been a problem again. And I just said, I'm not willing to let it be a problem again. I can't ever go through this again. I think I have PTSD from being in the hospital and being so sick. So even as a clinician, I would recommend people really be clear about what your wants and needs are. And that is super important, irrespective of what area of your life you're doing advocacy for or on. Absolutely. It's, it's your body. It's your body. You're the one that's going to have to live with whatever mm-hmm. decision is made. So if you come across somebody who is not willing to listen to you, mm-hmm. what should you do? Uh, the honest answer is people have to come to lifestyle changes and health changes on their own course. You can continue giving them information, but there's no point in forcing anyone to do anything. You know, there's this 
trans-theoretical model of change. It's Prochaska and DiClemente, and it talks about how people kind of progress potentially through a series of mindset shifts before they are ready to make changes. Some people never get beyond pre-contemplation. They can be ready to pay money for a program. They can be ready to commit to a, being a part of a gym, but they're not ready to do the work. And that's one thing I've really learned being a small business owner that I've had a lot of people pay me money over the years that really weren't ready to do the work. And it's important that we're honest with ourselves and honest with uh, where we invest our time and our money so that, you know, it's very aligned because when it's not aligned, it doesn't work, but it's beautiful when it is aligned. And when it does work, when someone's really ready to make those changes, it is beautiful to watch. And I think, and I know it all starts with the nutrition piece that so much of our health and wellness really starts from the foods we choose to eat or avoid. And if more people understood that there would be less, there would be less metabolic inflexibility. There would be less obesity. uh, There would be a lot less health problems here in the United States, which is really kind of sad for me to see uh, how much that's changed over the last 20 plus years. Yeah. You know, now that my eyes are so open, it's so painful Mm -hmm. because you're like, your life could be so much better. Yes. It takes some work, but once you do that work, your life is so much easier and maybe you can get off that medication. Maybe you don't have to go to see the doctor every week or whatever it is, you know, and and it's so worth it. And it makes losing weight easier. It makes maintaining the weight loss easier. And it's so hard to get that across to people sometimes, you know, it's like, it's sad. Okay. So before we move on, uh, if, if somebody comes across a health professional Mm -hmm. that is absolutely unwilling to work with you, you know, it is this way, Mm -hmm. period, you know, you will have the episiotomy, whether you want it or not, what do you do? change your healthcare provider without question. (laughs) And that's, I mean, it comes down to, is this person meeting your needs? Because you're probably not a good fit for them either, to be honest. And unfortunately it's trying to, it's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Um, You know, part of my job as an NP in this very big cardiology group was deciding based on this patient's personality, who are they going to do best with? Because there are some docs who are going to completely tune them out there are others who will be super receptive and will take the time to understand where they're coming from. And then there are some that'll just be meh. And then, you know, and, and that was really a, a role I took very seriously determining, you know, who is best suited to see this patient. Now, most practices don't necessarily have that uh, service, but that was a lot of, you know, what the NPs did. We were like, oh, we definitely need to send this patient to Dr. So-and-so because that person will take the time to listen to them Whereas this physician who's just as good of a physician has no time for people questioning anything. They're an excellent physician. If if I was having a massive heart attack, that would be the person to do my calf, but they're, they're, they're not patient enough like this other physician and therefore, you know, they're better suited. So absolutely, you know, finding a provider that's better aligned with you. Yeah, you know, and it's so hard, especially in today's time Mm -hmm. to have a doctor that actually has the time. It's not, Mm -hmm. not because they don't want to, or they're, you know, not a great doctor, but they really honestly don't have the time because they have Mm -hmm. to go by certain, you know, you only get so many minutes per patient. You got to go, got to go, got to go. And it's sad. And you have to have so many patients because it's, you know, becomes this business because of, yes. And it's, it's it's terrible. I mean, I can tell you that, uh, you know, hospital follow-ups 
complicated cardiology follow-ups, I got 30 minutes and normally I got 15 minutes. And I remember the whole time I was in that room, it was, okay, I got to make sure I get through these five things before my 30 minutes is over. Or patients who think that running five or 10 minutes behind is because, you know, you'd have the first three patients would show up late and then it would, it would throw off your whole day. And then mm-hmm. people would complain. And I'm like, listen, I, I ran my, my rooms and my books really tight. So I didn't keep people waiting, but you know, if there's an emergency, everything stops. And I think it's hard for people to understand it. It's almost like everyone's frustrated, you know, healthcare providers are frustrated because reimbursement is down and very poor, unless you're doing a cash business or you're in functional medicine and, and everything's fee for service. Or, you know, patients are frustrated because they don't get enough time with their healthcare providers. They're paying more and more and more for health insurance and they're getting less yeah. and less and less. Oh yeah. And so, <laughs> um, you know, case in point that my husband and I, our insurance flipped in the beginning of the year. And so we're now part of this huge, uh, we're in a huge bucket. So yes, we have insurance, but we have to spend, I don't know, $5,000 before we'll get any coverage. So every single time one of us sees a doctor, we get a bill that says, okay, well, your portion is this. And, and I said to my husband, I'm not sure which is better having to pay $600 a month for insurance coverage, which is what we did before, or now we just pay every bill that comes, you know, comes through the door. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting transitional time. And, and unfortunately it's a lot of the metabolically ill that are driving this incredible expenditure for healthcare costs. I mean, escalating rates of obesity, diabetes, metabolic disease, um, you know, a lot of cancer and, you know, vascular disease. And unfortunately the people who are healthy are paying for the insurance for those that are not. And that's really what it comes down to. And it's, and it's not a criticism. It's just, that's, that's exactly how things work. My insurance premiums continue to go up, even though with the exception of having a healthcare hiccup, I've never been sick a day in my life. Same thing with my kids and my husband, we've all been very healthy. Uh, and so I, I think that, uh, you know, things have to change. They really have to change. I agree because we've kind of shifted from healthcare to sick care. No, there's a huge difference there. Mm -hmm. And I find that so incredibly sad. And even with what we're dealing with right now, what we're seeing, so much could be avoided Mm -hmm. by some simple, and it's really, it really is simple. It seems so awful, but it's really not that difficult. If I can do it, anybody can do it. And and it would change things and they wouldn't Mm -hmm. have to be so afraid of, Mm -hmm. you know, catching something because they will be able to trust their immune system. Mm -hmm. But, but what is it? 88% of us have like metabolic issues, something like that. I, that's, that's the latest crazy. statistics and it's, it's not going to get better. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> no. interviewed, I interviewed a physician earlier this year and, and she believes strongly, and it makes sense to me that, you know, the drive for seed oils, so canola oil, um, you know, seed oils are canola oil, soybean oil, cotton seeds, sunflower, safflower, et cetera, in the processed food industry has driven carbohydrate addiction, which has driven insulin resistance. And I was reading uh, something Dr. Ben Bickman wrote the other day, and he said uh, the most consumed fat in Americans' diets is soybean oil. I saw that. Which is like just disgusting. And so I think about, and I go always go back to, it all starts with food and that drives, you know, how well or diseased we are. And so if you do nothing else, I don't care if you decide to be plant-based, carnivore, keto, low-carb, paleo, primal, et cetera, 
avoid seed oils and read food labels and just eat less processed crap. And if you do those couple of things, your health is going to be infinitely better than the person who eats a bunch of processed crap and eats a lot of seed oils and uh, doesn't move their body and doesn't sleep and doesn't manage their stress. And so, yes, you're right. There's a lot that to unpack, uh, but unfortunately we've conditioned patients to believe that we need heart healthy grains and we need a lot of carbohydrates and fat is bad and meat is bad and saturated fat is bad. And so, you know, it's all this old dogma, you know, I remember telling, you know, it's like slather yourself in sunscreen. And I'm like, well, you know, ever since I started being more meat based, I don't have to wear sunscreen. Why is that? And, you know, now that I get outside, you know, for, I, I mean, I walk my dogs a lot and that's exercise for them and for me. And uh, just exposure to sunlight will help you on so many levels. And yet we condition people to fear the sun and to fear fat. And it's just, it's this trickle down. And meat. Yeah. Yes. And yet, you know, that's a satiety thing. You know, if you eat a piece of steak, you are going to be much more satiated than you eat a bowl of pasta. And, you know, when I look at my teenage boys who are very athletic and very fit, they can manage the insulin response they get when they eat a pound of pasta. Whereas if I were to eat that, it would mess up my blood sugar for days. And so not in a good way because we're at a different (laughs) life stage. Um, And I don't have as much lean muscle mass as they do at their ages. So I think it's really important for people to understand like, what's the science? What's, you know, what are behind these recommendations? I've had people tell me, you just want to, you know, ruin my day because you're telling me not to eat bagels and ho-hos. And I'm like, seriously, do you actually feel good when you eat bagels and ho-hos? Because I feel, pardon me, like shit, mm-hmm. crap. I feel like crap <laughs> when I eat those kinds of foods. I don't feel good. Like I can have a piece of dark chocolate every single day and I'm completely satiated and happy. But if you give me something that's gluten-free flour, it will mess up my blood sugar for days. It's, it's, it's a proven, like my husband laughs cause I wear a continuous glucose monitor and I, yep, I got mine. <laughs> and you know, on Easter I had a gluten-free brownie and not a lot. And I think I had two cookies, which I never do. I think the last time I had any of that was probably Thanksgiving. And my continuous glucose monitor was messed up for two days as was my lumen. And I was telling my husband, I was like, I can just, I just don't feel good. Like when my blood sugars, it's not even that high, but it's just, I don't feel good. So really being tuned into your body, I think is, is certainly very important. It is incredibly important. And I will tell you, uh, one of the experiments I did with my continuous glucose monitor was honey, because that's this big controversial thing in the carnivore community. Well, I, I used to eat honey seriously every day for lunch mixed with peanut butter on my whole wheat, low calorie, uh, bread. And, um, okay. And, uh, so, um, I decided to test the honey to see for myself what it did on my body. I mean, if some people can handle it, I don't have a problem with that, whatever. But to say that, you know, it's a good thing just because it's kind of under carnivore, maybe not so. So I tested it. Ooh, that was the only thing that I've eaten. And I've experimented with a few things. Mm -hmm. Most things I just don't care enough about to even, uh, there's no point. I don't care, but that was something specific. It went up above, you know, the 140. It went boom like that. And but that wasn't even the worst part of it. I felt dizzy, nauseous, really, and just like not right for like, I don't know, probably a good two hours. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, that is At not least, worth it to me. It, no. I felt bad. And so, no, that's just not okay. 
Well, it's interesting. The only thing there's been a couple things that I've done have made my blood sugar go up. One was plantains, which I used to just eat plantains with coconut oil and sea salt. And that was fine. Um, the other thing is I must've gotten some seed oils in a dressing when I was out, I was out having seafood with my husband and, and I looked at my husband and I was like, oh my God, I hit like 160. That never happens. And so I called the restaurant and said, what was part, like, I'm almost afraid to ask. Like, if you go to a restaurant, you can assume you're getting seed oils. It's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And so even though this was this high-end restaurant, they're like, oh yeah, it's like a canola oil, extra virgin olive oil blend. And I was like, okay, well, that's the end of that. But uh, I think it's really, you know, even with my patients, I have them check with like berries and sweet potato and beans and honey. And it's interesting to see so much of it's bio-individual, meaning um, everyone is so different that people will have a different glycemic response just with different carbohydrates. And I love Absolutely. how there's a lot of the carnivore keto dudes that like effortlessly eat honey. And I'm like, I'd love to know what your insulin and glucose response is because- me too. I've come to find, and I'm like, that's fine if people want to use honey. But when you, can you look at the data? You're like, wow, that is yeah. really unbelievable. And so that's the, the one, you know, big takeaway when people wear our CGM is just how valuable that information is. Right. Is it not the best thing? And I think I everyone some should people, have one. I do too, mm -hmm. but I see a lot of criticism, like, well, if you're not diabetic,